Uh, Tonight we are going to read from the book of Esther, starting at chapter 9, verse 1. It it will be on the screen, or you could use your phone, or there are Bibles at the back as well. Esther, chapter 9. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshendatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashtha, Arasai, Aradai, and Vatsatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews those living in villages, observed the 14th month of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. 
He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of these people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Hi everyone, um, my name's Anthony, and uh, first I just want to thank Matt for Bible reading with lots of difficult names, um, so thank you Matt. But let me pray and then I'll uh, get into Esther. Lord Jesus, you are in control of all things and we pray now as we look into your word in the book of Esther that we will learn what you want to teach us tonight and that your Holy Spirit will move in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Esther is an awesome book of the Bible. It's easy to read and it's an engaging story but it's also deep and thought-provoking, with many twists and turns. It's a story about human contrasts, but ultimately it's a story about whether God is there for his people in a world that's hostile to him. It's disconcerting because God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Is God silent? It can look like that sometimes. Take the case in point of Andrew Thorburn recently. Andrew was the previous CEO of the National Australia Bank, the chairman of his church parish council, 
and one of the shortest, or the shortest running CEO of Essendon Football Club. He was CEO for one day. Why? Because Essendon saw that there was a conflict of interest between Thorburn being CEO of Essendon and having a leadership role in his church. So the question comes down to whether a Christian can be um, involved in a secular organisation where some of their views differ from um, others. The world can be a hostile place. So is God in control of the world? Esther raises these questions for us today. Is God present and how are God's people going to live in a hostile world? And what is God going to do about it? So firstly, let me just recap um, some of the context of the book of Esther. Esther said, after the exile of Israel, God was so sick of his people sinning that he allowed Babylon to conquer Israel. But then the Persians conquered Babylon. And although they, the Persians allowed the Jews to return home, many uh, Jews did not, including Esther and Mordecai. But this left the Jews with many questions. Where is God now? Has he rejected his people? And how am I as a Jew to live outside the promised land? Let me now then quickly recap the four main characters in the book. King Xerxes. He's a powerful, stupid, vain, self-absorbed, arrogant, cruel, and incredibly wealthy of the largest known empire in the world at the time, Persia. But he's also indecisive and needs to be told what to do. Haman is his second in charge, and he could be summed up with the word hatred. He hates the Jews. And the source of his hatred goes right back to when the Jews were travelling to the Promised Land and his ancestors ancestors tried to kill the Jews. And highlighting both their characters is an interaction between Haman and Xerxes in chapter 3. And it goes, paraphrasing, something like this. Haman says, hey, there's these people, they're not like us, they don't obey your laws, can we kill them? And Xerxes replies, yeah, okay. No questions, no details. He's so, Xerxes is so self-absorbed, he never even asks who they are. And he doesn't even know the background of his queen, Esther, who's from the people that Haman wants to destroy. All Xerxes knows is that she's beautiful. And Haman is so full of hate, he writes an edict to kill all the Jews. So next we have Mordecai. Mordecai does three things that drive the narrative of the book of Esther. Firstly, he fails to bow down to Haman, probably because Haman hates Jews, but we're not told. Secondly, he um, lets the king know about a plot to kill him, showing that Mordecai follows the king and is obedient to him. And thirdly, Mordecai challenges Esther to be the queen of her people and to live up to her role. 
So Mordecai's failure to bow down to Haman drives Haman nuts. So Haman decides not only will he kill Mordecai, but he'll kill all the Jews. And hence the edict we talk, I talked about before. So in chapter 5, verse 11, Haman boasts about his great wealth, his many sons, and how the king has honoured him and made him the second most powerful person in the known world at the time. But this gives Haman no satisfaction because Mordecai the Jew won't bow down to him. He wants total control. So, what does Haman's wife suggest to do? As all good wives, she says, hey, why don't you kill Mordecai? Impale him on a massive pole. And then, Haman, you can have a lovely day. It's basically what she says. And he goes, I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea. (laughs) And here's where Queen Esther comes to the fore. Once she's on board with Mordecai's challenge to save the Jews, she leads like a queen. So up to this point, she's only mentioned as the queen of Persia once, but from then on, she's mentioned as the queen 13 times. So she takes her role seriously from then on and becomes a queen with a capital Q. Esther comes up with a plan. It's a risky plan, but... She makes the decision to go with the plan without knowing the outcome. And her attitude is, if I perish, I perish. Her plan is simple. Stop a genocidal maniac and reverse an irrevocable edict of a passively stupid self-serving king. No problem. How's God going to help in this? Sometimes God can do things in unexpected ways. Early on in our journey in Ethiopia, Trudy, my wife, was using her nursing specialty and was asked to train birth attendants. This was the first training in the area known to persecute believers. And as she walked into the door of the meeting room, she looked in and she saw a room full of men with AK-47s and walked out. What are the men doing here with guns, she asked. Well, they're here for the training. But they're not birth attendants. Well, no, of course they're not. You'll train them in something else. But here, the men were there to check us out. But that day was the start of friendship and those people ultimately became our advocates and reduced the persecution in the area. So actually, Queen Esther's plan works perfectly. It's a plan that involves her risking her life and it has two main aspects. Firstly, Esther's going to identify with her people. She's now ready to admit she's a Jew. And secondly, Queen Esther acts as the mediator between her people and King Xerxes to save their lives. So my second point is... um, Esther and Mordecai hope that God is in control. So in chapter 7, we see that Queen Esther, plan, her plan leads to Haman being found out. And effectively, he's plotting to kill the queen. And the king uh, doesn't, look on, doesn't look on this very favourably. 
and Haman is executed on the pole he had planned to execute Mordecai on. And I love the one-liners in the book of Esther. In, in chapter 7, when the king is looking for a solution to the Haman problem, Harbona, a eunuch, one of the king's eunuchs, speaks up. He goes, I was walking to work this morning and I just happened to see a 23-high-metre pole. Perhaps we could impale Haman on it. <laughs> I mean, why didn't he mention this earlier? Um, so the palace is full of self-interested people. But when all looked doomed for God's people, God cares and he has a plan. And we see that God is in control throughout the book by the great reversal of Haman's plan. Many of the steps throughout the book seemed quite random, but putting them together, um, you can see that God is in control. Uh, Esther becomes queen. Mordecai saves the king, and the king can't sleep. These are just some of the pieces to the puzzle that lead to Haman's judgment and ultimately to the salvation of the Jews. In chapter 8, the story continues, but there's a problem. The king's edict can't be reversed. The king's first edict was to kill all the Jews, and it's irrevocable, because the king never makes a mistake, right? So what to do? Well, the queen and Mordecai get permission to write a second edict, and it says the same thing pretty much as the first, but in reverse. The Jews can defend themselves against any enemies on that same day. And we can see up there the two edicts. So there are two irrevocable edicts in the book of Esther. One outlining the death of God's people and one outlining the salvation of God's people. So we see that God is in control by arranging circumstances and events so that his people who are facing certain death, will be saved. And again, this seems to be why Esther is in power right at this time. In chapter 9, we see that the second edict is enacted and it completely swamps the first edict. No one kills the Jews. But they defend themselves and they kill many enemies, 800 in the capital Susa. And this is the seat of power of the Persian Empire, the greatest empire in the world at the time. So imagine in Canberra if there were 800 people who hated Christians. It's a similar idea. So it's no wonder that Mordecai feared for Esther in revealing her identity as a Jew. And later on across the whole empire, 75,000 men are killed who hate the Jews. But we don't like to talk about killings, do we? So what are we to make of these killings? Well, firstly, they're in self-defence. The Jews only kill those who wanted to kill them. No one else. And the, re the reason was because of the first edict, remember, that when Mordecai saw... Sorry, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not, would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. 
So the first edict was an attempted genocide by an enraged, power-hungry man with a centuries-old grudge. So secondly, the Jews actually disobey part of the edict. Um, they don't keep any of the plunder. And this is outlined three times. And no plunder means that the Jews here are acting on God's behalf and so they should not be rewarded for their actions. But the primary point of chapter 9 is about the celebration. God's people have been saved and this is an opportunity for celebration. A great celebration straight after, after the event, but then it's such a, such a big deal that it's going to be an annual celebration uh, so that they can keep remembering how God saved them from certain death and to acknowledge that God was in control. He saved them when all hope seemed lost. Salvation has come to the Jews. And for Esther, as a result, that all that, all that has been happened, we can see in chapter 9, verse 29, that Esther is now resolved to live in both her worlds because she's referred to as Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, her Jewish father. Now, chapter 10 is the end of the book seems a bit of an anticlimax. Perhaps it's even just been tacked on. Little has changed. King Xerxes is still in power and he's still getting more wealth from his people. Has anything really changed? Is God really there for his people? After all, he's not mentioned in the book. And what then is the book of Esther about? Well, it's actually about God. It's a, it's God is there and he's fully in control even when we can't see him. So in the book of Esther, we have a situation where the world seems lost, but there is an advocate for God's people, Queen Esther. And we see the similarities with Jesus. Jesus comes to earth facing a world hostile to him. Humanity is sinful and Jesus enters the world as humanity's advocate. Like Queen Esther, Jesus prays um, before facing a life and death situation. Like Queen Esther, Jesus identifies with his people and mediates between God and them. Now we've seen that what seemed like an irreversible first edict which is an irrevocable edict of death, was reversed and the people were saved. And God brings about this great reversal. And isn't that what we face now? Actually, two irrevocable edicts. The problem for us is that through sin, we're doomed. An irrevocable sentence of death how can this problem be solved? God says that justice needs to be done and the price of sin is death, as it outlines in Romans 6, verse 23. But God has given us a gift. He wants us to be with him and not destroyed. And his love for his people is so great that he solved the problem for those who love him with a second edict. Jesus dies on the cross to save us. So just like 
the second irrevocable edict was an edict of salvation, so Jesus' death and resurrection is an irrevocable edict for the salvation of all of God's people. And remember, how does Galatians describe how Jesus died in chapter 3, verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written that cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, a reference back to Esther. So like Haman, Jesus died on a pole or a cross. He suffered the curse of death in our place. Of course, the motivations of Haman and Jesus were radically different. Haman wanted to kill everyone. Jesus wants to save everyone. But God maintains both his justice because the punishment for sin is paid for and his love. His people are saved through Jesus' gift of life. And this is an amazing gift. And this is what we need to remember and to celebrate. The result of Jesus' death and resurrection means that his people will be celebrating and feasting with him in heaven for eternity, just like the Jews were commanded to do. And it's a gift that keeps on giving. Because when God does amazing things for his people, other people come to him like they do in chapter 8, verse 17. So my last point is how do we live as God's people in a hostile world when God is in control? What does this mean for us as Christians today who live in a sometimes hostile world? Now, we don't face genocide in Sydney, but some of us may be facing things like Andrew Thorburn. How do we react when we face pressures for our beliefs? Where is God in this? Have you ever been in a position to do something significant to defend God's people? Have you ever been in a situation where you thought things would end up being devastating, but by God's grace there was a complete reversal? Sometimes it feels overwhelming when, as Christians, we face opposition. We don't want the stress, we don't want to be awkward, and we certainly don't want to lose our jobs. But we see parallels with how we live now in the book of Esther. The world is a hostile place. It may appear that God is hidden, but actually he's in control of all things, then, now, and forever. So how are we to live in light of the teaching of the book of Esther? Mordecai shows us how to live in this complex world. And it's found in chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai worked for the good of his people. He spoke up for their welfare. He wasn't silent. And it took some courage, but he spoke up. And he was uncompromising in his faith. Are we, like Mordecai, going to advocate for our brothers and sisters in line with our Christian beliefs? But at the same time, Mordecai also worked for the good of Persia. He obeyed the king. Mordecai saved the king. And the people of Susa were shocked by the um, edict to kill all the Jews. So obviously the Jews had created a good impression. And Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7 
when the, says that when the Jews went into exile, um, Jeremiah told them to pray for the good of the city that they're going to be exiled in because if it prospers, you'll prosper as well. So do we pray for the good of our city and those that live in it? Serving God does not mean we can't participate in the world. However, being part of God's people impacts the way we live in the world today. So there's a balance, like what we find with Queen Esther. She's being open as, a, as a, one of God's people and serving the good of her city. But the reasons for doing both those things are the same. It's for God's glory and for others to see the faithfulness of God's people and, hope, and the hope and uh, prayer is that they will come to him. And finally, do we celebrate? Well, the Jews do. They celebrate and remember Purim every year. But we can also remember the good things that Christ has done for us and given us. And we can celebrate our salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is what we did last week at Solis. We celebrated Solis' birthday and we celebrated people confirming their faith and as Stu always says, we don't celebrate the church, we celebrate all the people who come to know Jesus through the church. So the book of Esther is teaching us to also have an eternal focus where God will ultimately prevail. In chapter 9, verse 30, Mordecai um, sent the Jews words of goodwill and assurance. And we have them too. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Our world is so much like Queen Esther's and Mordecai's. We live in a secular, sometimes hostile world. Often we cannot see God, but he's always with us. What's more, knowing Jesus' death and resurrection allows us to identify as God's saved people and gives us um, here at Solis the confidence and assurance that we need to live as Christians in the world. So we have full assurance that God is in control and confidence that through our identity with God and his ways that God loves us and watches over us.